The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Have you ever heard of uh, Ted Turner? He is one of the most successful media moguls the world has ever seen. And uh, once he said this to the Dallas Morning News. Christianity is a religion for losers. And then he said, I don't want anybody to die for me. I've had a few drinks and a few girlfriends, and if that's going to put me in hell, then so be it. Now, I don't claim to know what uh, Ted Turner thinks today, but in 1989, what did he think about the cross? Stupid, right? It's for losers, and it's useless. I don't want that. Um... Foolish, ridiculous. But it raises the question, how do you see the cross of Jesus? How do you interpret it? What do you see there? It's strange, isn't it, that the cross is still everywhere in pop culture? If you, if you want to get a uh, response, what do you do? Well, Madonna's going to dance around the cross, right? She's going to hang on a cross in her concerts and her videos. Kanye West on the cover of Rolling Stone, what was he wearing? The crown of thorns, right? He's the Christ figure, I guess, for pop culture. The cross is everywhere. Tattoos, jewelry, what are you going to see? The cross. There's there's still meaning there in that symbol for our culture. But what does it mean? Did you ever hear that controversial piece of art called Piss Christ? Did you hear about that one? It was a crucifix in urine. Well, the... um, the artist who created this piece, his name is Andres Serrano, and he was interviewed about this. And he asked, well, what does this mean to you? Listen to what he said. He said, the crucifix is a symbol that has lost its true meaning. He said, the horror of what occurred, it represents the crucifixion of a man who was tortured, humiliated, and left to die on a cross for several hours. In that time, Christ not only bled to death... He probably saw all his bodily functions and fluids coming out of him. So if piss Christ upsets people, maybe this is so because it is bringing the symbol closer to its original meaning. What do you see when you look at the cross? What is, what is the meaning there at the cross? What should you see? How do we even know how to, to interpret that or answer that question? There's a little more important. Today we have this, the privilege of seeing the cross of Jesus through the testimony of eyewitnesses. And I mean it, it's a privilege. It's been a privilege for me to, to study this. Um, we have two weeks left in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new with us, we've been going through this for about three years now. It's an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And in our text today, Matthew's concern is exactly our question. How do you interpret the cross? What do you see there? How should you interpret it? In fact, he's going to show us a variety of interpretations. We're going to see what the soldiers thought about it, what the chief priests and scribes thought about it, what the crowds thought about it, what the thieves thought about it. We're going to see their perspective on what's happening at the cross. But not only that, then it, then it, gets, then it gets weird. We get to see God's perspective on the cross very clearly very powerfully. 
And in the end of the story, there's this strange group of people who seem to share God's opinion on the cross. Strange group because they'd never be friends. They'd never meet together in a room. But they all see something in the cross, and it changes them. And as we're going to see, it makes them dangerous. Dangerous. So let's look. As we look at Matthew, let's look. Let's look evil in the face because you're going to see the worst evil ever. Let's look at Jesus. Let's look at the cross. Let's see the responses in the text, and let's think about our own. How do you see the cross? We're going to do this in six scenes. You know, it's a story. So we're going to see uh, six scenes of responses to the cross. The first scene is going to be verses 27 to 31. The soldiers with Jesus. Sometimes I play this game with my kids. Hey guys, if we had a time machine, where would you go? What would you look at? And sometimes it works for talking about the Bible. Where would you go if you had a time machine and you could go see any scene of the Bible? There's lots of good ones, right? Hmm. I don't know if you'd pick this one. Today we're in this comfortable room, sunny Southern California. We're free. We're going to go out to eat lunch after this. If we could get in a time machine and go back to this moment that we're about to read about, we would go from being comfortable here, maybe a little tired, maybe drowsy, maybe interested, whatever, however we were feeling. We would go there and we would be in that room and all of a sudden we would be filled with maybe nausea. Maybe you would start weeping or you'd be... But you'd be overwhelmed with the moment because what you would see here, verses 27 to 31, is a man who's been flogged. And this is a Roman flogging. Do you know how this works, right? It's the foot and a half long stick or club with leather thongs tied to it. And at the end, you've got rocks, nails. And so they would stretch out the criminal, arms, arms up high on a post to where he can't move. And they would just rip this thing on him and it would stick. And then they'd pull it off and do it over and over and over and over again. This is the way the Romans would soften people up for the cross. That way you won't hang there quite as long. You'll die sooner. But it's just brutal beyond brutal. The organs are exposed. The skin is ripped off from the neck to the back of the legs. Horrid. And this is what Jesus looks like in this room. He has been flogged. And what are the soldiers going to do to him? Look at verse 27. They gathered the whole battalion before Jesus. How many of you, this might be your, worst, this, your new worst nightmare? You in a room at the mercy of a battalion of Roman soldiers. What do they do to him? Verse 28, they strip him. How do you think that feels after you've been flogged, have your shirt put back on, and ripped off you? They stripped him. How would you like to be naked in front of a room of uh, a few hundred Roman centurions or soldiers? They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. You're talking an inch or two inches long. It's probably not the cute little circle crown because I doubt they wanted to cut their hands that much to make that. It's more like a whole, a whole big hat. And they pressed it in on his head. You know, all the science of what it does to the nerves and how sensitive your head is and have that many large spikes pressing in. Then they took a reed or, you know, basically just a stick. And they smack 
the thorns into his head. Just evil beyond what you can imagine. But what are they doing? What are they seeing? Look at the end of verse 29. Kneeling before him. Do you see it in your mind's eye? They're kneeling now before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him, hit him on the head. What are they doing? Verse 31, again, when they had what? Mocked him. What's their response to Jesus? They're making fun of him. Specifically, they're making fun of one aspect about him. What's the, what's the only charge his enemies could come up with? Do you remember from the trial? What is the horrible thing Jesus has done? He claimed to be king. Now, they never went into the evidence of, oh, are you the Christ, the promised king, told of in the scriptures? Are you that guy? Have you done any miracles? Have you taught amazingly? Have you, they would find evidence if they looked. They didn't go into evidence. They're just making fun of him. And so a king, what does a king wear? They wear a, a scarlet or a purple robe. And what does a king have on his head? A crown. And what does he carry in his right hand? A scepter. And so this is just a big joke where the soldiers spit on the king. The soldiers take the king's own scepter and pound his own crown into his head. They're mocking Jesus. They're laughing at him. They're saying... Your kingdom is a joke, and you are a joke of a king. That's one response to Jesus. Is that a common response in our day? Sure it is. Sure it is. This is a joke. This is a joke. You know, I have a theory that everybody loves Jesus as long as he's just a good teacher. If he can be your spiritual Oprah... We like him, right? He can give you some good advice. He can help you with your marriage or your parenting or your finances or your self-esteem. Okay, sure, we all like Jesus. All the, the leaders of the ages, Gandhi loved Jesus as a good teacher. Um, even political revolutionaries in South America claim Jesus being on their team. But what happens when Jesus says, I'm king. What happens when he says, it's all for me? What happens when he says, repent and believe in the kingdom? So in other words, turn away from all your other kings and devote all of who you are to me. I'm the right king. I'm the true king, the ultimate king. That's when we hate him. That's when we mock him. Sinful heart. So the soldiers seem to represent those who mock Jesus as king and see him as worthless, right? That's what they're saying. You're worthless. Because the, the intended message of this process when the Romans would crucify someone, the intended message for all to see is that this person here is worse than trash and we're going to treat them as worse than trash. And that's what's happening to Jesus. Heavy stuff. Let's go to scene two. We're going to see a Variety of witnesses to the cross and their response. You see the crowds, the religious leaders, the thieves. And it's funny, this group would never be hanging out together. The crowd wouldn't get to hang out with the chief priests. The chief priests would never hang out with these thieves. The thieves would just want to steal from the crowds. 
And yet in this moment, the crowds, the chief priests, and the thieves are united in one common theme. Let's see what it is. We start in verse 32 with scene two. As they went out, Matthew tells us they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. What would happen, most likely, is that the victim would have to carry his crossbeam, which weighs maybe 80 pounds or something. And he's got to go publicly right through the city so everybody can see, hey, look at this guy. He's a joke. He's a loser. We're going to pin him up. So it's a walk of shame, ultimate, utter shame. Jesus knows what it's like to be shamed. And so he's walking through with his cross. He gets to the edge of the city, and you can imagine, right, he just can't do it anymore. He's been, awa- he's been awake all night at this fake trial. He's been beaten up several times over. He's been flogged. That's enough to kill people many times. He's been beaten again by the soldiers. And then to carry this thing, I'm amazed he, he makes it out of the city. And then he falls over, and so the soldiers would say, and this is not a volunteer position, carry his cross. And so you carry it. And they carried him to Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. You know, supposedly, if you go, it actually looks like a skull, this hill. And so this main road kind of curves around, and in the background, there's this hilly area, and that's where you're going to crucify him, right by the road. So the, the crowds pass by, and they see him. He's, he, and, and he's outside of the city now. It's a sign of rejection. We're, we're kicking you out. You're nothing to us. Verse 34, they offer him Wine to drink mixed with gall. When he tasted it, he would not drink it. What do you think that means? There's a few theories. The one I think most likely is the gall would kind of numb you out a little bit. Because what are they about to do to him? About to crucify him? Going through texts like this reminds me of how ironic the symbol of the cross is. I love the symbol of the cross. It's on our necklaces, great, wear it. It's in our tattoos, good, put it on. It's on our building, it's right here. But you think about what it is again, right? We're used to it. It's a torture machine. You, you wouldn't wear a, a guillotine on your necklace, usually, maybe. Are you in a, one of those bands, right? Or, or an electric chair, you know, electric chair earrings. What's your deal, you know, or a noose around your neck? kind of morbid aren't you you know do you need you need counseling but the cross is everywhere and the cross is worse it's worse to to think of the details i don't i don't want to think about it but we we have to think about it today to pin somebody's arm down and take a large spike and put it right through this wrist right in between those bones on a piece of wood and hang you up in the air on this so they got to give you a drink to numb you out a little bit so they can stretch you out like they need to Mm. When he tastes it, he won't drink it. Wow. How come? I don't know. Here's, here's my two guesses. Number one, he's not going to be numbed out. He wants to be fully in his right mind. He's doing something on purpose. If that's the case, I'm in awe. Are you in awe? How many of you are drinking it? You're like, give me another glass. Can you hit me on the head too? Harder? <laughs> He won't drink it. Secondly, I wonder as well, he says in the last chapters when he's having the Last Supper, this is this wine right there, he's passing out the wine. This cup is the new cup, uh, 
This is, this is my blood for the covenant. And then he says, I'm not going to drink it till I drink it with you in the kingdom. And maybe, maybe as he tastes the wine, he spits it out because he says, not till the next time. Either way, I'm so amazed with Jesus. I love Jesus in these stories because he's so beautiful, majestic, in control, principled. He knows what he's doing, which just shows you this irony, the popular opinion on the cross, the mockery, and yet the wisdom and the intentionality in the cross. What's going? Can you see it? So he spits it out. Verse 35, the Bible's so understated. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments by casting lots. They sat there and they watched over him. It's impossible to describe the, the pain of the crucifixion. The spikes would go through the median nerve, which just sends like, if you've ever hit your funny bone, it's like that, except infinitely worse and constant all throughout your upper body. Um, then they probably would turn the feet laterally to get through it. So you're, you're on this wood, and you're in a Y position, a Y position. And the reason for that is to breathe, you have to get to T. And then you have to exhale again at Y. And every time you have to push yourself up, what are you pushing on? Nails through your ankles and your wrists. The pain is unfathomable undescribable and all the while you're rubbing that flogged back up that wood I'm sure they cleaned it for him your bones go out of joint you're immeasurably thirsty you have possible heart failure and then you end up dying of asphyxiation from all the goo in your chest and then all through that, you're naked, and they're rolling dice for your clothes. And what are they saying? What's the, what's the atmosphere? Oh, yeah. seven takes the T-shirt. And there he is on the cross. Again, it says, you mean nothing. You mean less than nothing. You're nothing to us. And verse 39 blows my mind. Those who passed by... Look at verse 39. What do they do? They derided him. They ridiculed with contempt. Now, come on. Even if you saw Hitler on the cross, would you make fun of him at that point? How do you, how do, you do that with somebody in this position? Much less Jesus. They're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. Look at what they say, verse 40. Oh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. What a joke. You are the Messiah. You're going to save people. Look where you are. You are so obviously not the promised king. You are so obviously not the son of God. Look where you are right now. That's what they're saying. Rubbing it in, mocking him. Look who else joins in, verse 41. So also the chief priest, the scribes, the elders, what? Mocked him. He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We'll believe in him if he comes down. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Jay, Jesus, where's your saving power now? Oh, we'll believe in you. We'll, we'll repent if you come down from the cross. Oh, but you're pinned there with nails. 
just evil. Son of God, look at their question. They're basically saying, how much does God love you right now? If God loved you, would you be up here on the cross? That's what they're saying to Jesus. You know, can I show you a verse from the Old Testament here? Look at this line in verse 43. The chief priest said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Now look at this verse from Psalm 22, verse 7. Psalm 22, verse 7 is an ancient poem written by King David, and it's weird because it has imagery that doesn't seem to fit its original context. When did this ever happen in David? So we, what, what does this all mean? But we see it really as a prophetic psalm. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders said, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. Look at what David wrote in Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's ironic. That's ironic. The chief priests and the scribes are quoting scripture, maybe accidentally, maybe in mockery. Verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled in the same way. To revile is to criticize in an abusive or angry, insulting matter, manner. And I think the point is this. You've become low on the totem pole when crucified criminals are reviling you. <laughs> right? If they're on the cross and they're being tortured and you're not on the cross, you're like one up on them in status. <laughs> if you're on the cross, who can you make fun of? You're on the cross. But for Jesus in that moment, even thieves on a cross who are guilty have something on him. Making fun of him on the cross. He's mocked. Man, what's happening here? Doesn't it just seem more evil than should ever be? It is. It's the ultimate evil. But I think there's a picture here of... What, what if we ask this question? If God put himself in our hands, what would happen? You know, our hearts towards God, sometimes we love him, sometimes we hate him. If you're a Christian, something's happening to your heart, and you're, you're changing, you're loving him more. A lot more. But if God put himself in our hands, what would really happen? What would we do with him? I think this is the picture of the crucifixion. This is the picture of the sinful heart's response or attitude towards a holy God who claims to be creator and king. You're a joke. That's what we say. Now, this is ultimate evil here, evil nuclear power this is the time of darkness and we we haven't done anything close to this but even if you just look at what theologians call sin what is sin what is it that's a that's a church word right oh it's bad things you know i did something bad once no that's not really it it's it's an it's an attitude or an inclination towards god and really all sin is basically a a soldier-like attitude, a chief priest-like attitude, a crowd-like attitude, a thief-like attitude. We're saying to God, God, you're not good, you're not valuable, you're not worthwhile. Sin is a deriding of God. It's a mockery. You're not worth trusting. I don't love you. I won't follow you. Get out of my way. I want something else instead. Don't you think that's true? 
So you see such a picture of sin here. That's kind of the first half, right? So we're asking, what do you see when you see the cross? see a lot of things. We've seen the response of of the people who were there, the soldiers, the chief priests, the crowds, the thieves, and they're basically saying all in the same way, you're a joke. You're nothing. You're worthless. That's one side. It's one way to see it. The cross is a joke. But now we begin to get a different perspective. Scene 3, verses 45 to 50. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, by the way, that's about noon, right? What's it usually like at the sixth hour? Put your sunglasses on. Verse 45. Now at the sixth hour there was what? Darkness. Darkness. A mysterious darkness from noon to three. What does it make you wonder? Maybe there's something more going on here than just another guy crucified. Then we see Jesus crying out in verse 46. And what is he asking? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't think Jesus was pulling out his memory card and being like, I'm supposed to quote a verse right here, Psalm 22. Do you think it's like that when he's on the cross? No, this, this just this spills out of him. It spills out of him. And yet, we can't help but notice, what's he quoting? Psalm 22, verse 1. The same psalm that the chief priests were using to mock him. Psalm 22, verse 1. David's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does Jesus seem to think about the cross? God is forsaking him at the cross. Now, on one level, I think everybody on a cross could feel that way. That's not unique in a sense. Except for the big picture of who Jesus has been. What has he predicted four or five times? I'm going to a cross. What has we seen in his betrayal and his arrest? He's in control. What did we see when they offered him the wine with gall in it? He spits it out. Why is he quoting Psalm 22 verse 1? Look at the rest of the psalm. I'm going to show you verses 14 to 18. Jesus said, or excuse me, not Jesus. David says in this psalm, okay, so again, a thousand years or something before Jesus. David says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. That never happened to David, literally, that we know of. What does it sound like? My bones are out of joint. I'm thirsty. My heart is breaking down. Look at verses 16 to 18. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've what? They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They what? Verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You should all be shocked right here. We're reading a poem from David 1,000 years before the cross. You guys, it's several hundred years before the cross is invented. 
And we get to the scene of the cross, and people are mocking it as meaningless, worthless. And yet we're hearing, if we know Psalm 22, the chief priests have quoted it mockingly. Jesus quotes it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we get into the psalm, and we see right there, this is a prophetic picture of the cross, the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah. He's got to come out of David's lineage. He's on the cross, and he's fulfilling in detail Psalm 22. I don't have to tell you, but it tells me that the cross isn't a meaningless accident. Can't be a meaningless accident. It's foretold of. It's on purpose. Jesus really is, in a unique way, being forsaken by his Father. The night before, Jesus had called himself the Passover lamb, and he had said, This blood is the, this cup is my blood. For the forgiveness of your sins. He's going to die for the people. Then look what happens in verse 50 of Matthew 27. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. I don't think anybody in this room knows how to do this. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and did what? Verse 50. Yielded up his spirit. Okay, time to die. Dead. You know, if, if I could pull that off and I was on a cross, I'd have done that earlier. I'd have done that right. We're going to flog you. Oh, spirit. <laughs> Sorry, guys. If he can do this, why did he wait? Why did he wait? Why did he get flogged? Why did he get mocked? Why did he get broken? Why did he get nailed? Why did he hang there for six hours? Why? Well, he wasn't done yet. In John 19.30, do you know what he says right before he gives up his spirit? Best three words in the Bible, maybe. It is finished. I did it. Accomplished it. Now he's finished. First half of the story, the cross is a joke. Then we see Jesus and we see meaning. We see him intentionally forsaken by the Father. We see him accomplishing something that's been written of. We see him when he's done saying, it's finished, I'm ready to go. And now we see God the Father's perspective. Scene four, look at verse 45. Again, we're going to hit on this verse 45. We see from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. Now, what does darkness mean? I mean, if you're there, can you imagine being there? It's hot. It's Palestine. It's the middle of the day. It's bloody. There's flies. It's gross. It's terrible. Noon hits. Hottest part of the day, and it's dark. So already you're like, weird, strange, ominous, foreboding. But if you have your biblical brains on, and the Gospel of Matthew assumes that we do, darkness means judgment. It's used all sorts of times in the scriptures. Darkness means judgment. Now let me give you two two things on this. I hope this is worth the time. First of all, any of you are like, really, in the middle of the day it was dark? Really? 
Do you want a little bit, just a little bit of proof, a piece of proof that it might have been that way? Okay. All right, listen to this. I'm going to give you a three-step connection. 800 A.D., there's a Byzantine historian named Georgius Sincellus. Okay, you got that? You'll be quizzed after the sermon. And he cites a passage from a book that no longer exists, which is fine. Ancient history has to deal with this all the time. It was called A History of the World, written by Julius Africanus in 220. 800, 220. This guy's quoting this guy. This guy is quoting this guy, quoting this guy. Okay, you ready? He's quoting a book by the Roman historian Thallus. And when did Thallus write? Middle of the first century. Right at the time of Christ. 20, maybe 30 years after Jesus. And what is this Roman historian writing about? In his third book, he's trying to explain a certain darkness that happened near the death of Jesus. And he tries to call it an eclipse. Now, why does he want to call it as an eclipse? Because eclipses are normal. And so there's nothing miraculous about being crucified during eclipse. It's just a matter of timing. But Georgius Sincellus is rightly saying it can't be an eclipse because when does the Passover happen? During the full moon all the time. You can't have an eclipse during a full moon. So whether or not you're into was it an eclipse or not, I don't care really. The point is the Roman historian is trying to argue away what? Darkness. Why is he, an unbeliever, a Roman historian, trying to argue away darkness? Because it was dark. (laughs) Extra biblical, now if none of that holds, I don't care. But extra biblical evidence, it was dark. What does it mean? What does it mean? Let me show you this verse from Amos Chapter 8, verse 9. I find this amazing. In Amos, the prophet is talking about judgment that's coming on the people for their rebellion. In 8, verse 9, the prophet prophet is quoting God. God says, on that day, someday in the future, I will make... (laughs) Just remember, Amos was written, what, 700 years or something? 800 years before Jesus? On that day, God says, I will what? I'll make the sun go down. When? At noon. I'm hearing jaws hitting the floor, right? Just at noon. And the dark and a dark in the earth in broad daylight. Then in verse ten he says, I'll turn your feasts into mourning. When is the crucifixion of Jesus happening? Passover. I'll turn your feasts and your mourning, your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And then here's the phrase. I will make it like the mourning for what? An only son? The father put in his lamentation for his only son. And the prophet hundreds of years before the cross. And on the cross in the darkness 
you see the father saying, this is judgment for sin. And I'm mourning the loss of a son. Why? Isaiah 53. It's all written ahead of time. Another prophet, hundreds of years before Christ. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 6. He was pierced for what reason? Our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? Our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we're healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's God's perspective on the cross. The world says it's a joke. The Father says, we're accomplishing the impossible, the salvation of sinners. Jesus is there on purpose, being forsaken in my place, in your place. We are the ones who deserve to be forsaken. He's being forsaken so that in him we will never be forsaken. Jesus is paying for our sin. And the father vindicates it. Now he's going to vindicate it big time on Sunday morning with, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the dead. Okay? But he's going to vindicate it now. Look at verse 51. And behold... What happens in the temple? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this thing is like 40 feet tall or something. So it's going to be hard work for you to climb on top and start tearing. Besides, you're never going to get in there anyway. What's it for? Again, with your, with your biblical hat on. Well, this curtain is the dividing wall. It's the separation. Behind the curtain is God's holy presence. He's holy. And he hates sin. He's right. And he always loves what's right. And he always hates what's evil. And so we can't go in because we've loved what's evil. We've done what's evil. So there's a separation. And yet when Jesus dies, when he gives up his spirit, the father goes, and what's he saying? Come on in. Come on in. If you look to my son, if you trust my son, Things are good between us. You've been made righteous. Come on in. Know me as your father. Come on in. Enjoy fellowship with me. Come on in. The way has been made. The way has been made. And the father is also saying, it's the only way. Jesus shut down the temple when he walked into Jerusalem. The curtains torn in two. Eighty seventy. the Romans are going to burn it down. You're not going to get right with God by sacrificing sheep in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. You know what's on the Temple Hill right now, in Jerusalem, if you go visit? Don't try to go offer a sacrifice to Yahweh, because you know what it is? It's a mosque, okay? You still can't follow the Old Testament law with temple and priest right now. You, you can't. It's impossible. That way is shut. It's closed. It's broken. It was an appetizer to the real way, the only way, the ultimate way. God has shown you the way. The way is Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done Last thing, look at verse 51, the father's perspective. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs were opened. You ready to get strange? Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What? 
You know, if you're looking at this and you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. I don't either, okay? I could say, I, there's a lot of things I would want to say about this. The big one is, Jesus rose from the dead. I'm absolutely sure of it. The evidence is overwhelming for it. And it's, it's changed my life. And it's changed the world. And the gospel writers, they're trustworthy. You know, if they were trying to doctor things up, they wouldn't have shown us all their mistakes over and over and over and over again. I mean, who are the big idiots in the gospels? It's, it's the apostles so many times. They're honest. And Matthew's saying, look, by the way, he wrote this in 60 AD. There are people still alive. If anybody was like, no, this is junk, if, if, the, the letter wouldn't have lasted. It's too early to be myth. There are people who would read this and go, yeah, I had that guy over for dinner. Now, what happened to him after? I don't know. I don't know. Did they die again? Did, they, did God die? I don't know. I'm just saying, God's saying something about the cross right here. What is the death and resurrection of Jesus going to bring? New life. Boom. Life. The death of Jesus brings life. For all who trust in Jesus, you will have a new life in God. A new identity. Bought by the blood of Jesus. An adopted daughter of God. An adopted son of God. Identity secure in his love and what he's done for you. And after you die, guess what's going to happen to you? We saw this so powerfully a couple of months ago with those Egyptian Christians who had their heads cut off by ISIS. And they went down swinging. Not violently, but they went down swinging saying, Jesus is Lord, cut it off. Why can they say that? I'm going to rise again. I'll see you on the flip side. We will rise. We will rise. We're undefeatable. We're, we will rise because Jesus was killed. We will rise because he rose. The Father's statement on the cross, this saves sinners. This brings them into my presence. This gives new life. Boom, mic drop. That's what the Father has to say about the cross. The world mocks it. Jesus is intentional. The Father shows us the meaning, its salvation. Now look at some of this motley crew who seem to agree with God. One thing I love about church is it brings people together who wouldn't ever hang out otherwise. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Sometimes you're like, I don't have anything in common with any of these people. They're all weird. Because you are normal. What is it that brings us together? We've got this thing for Jesus. And that trumps all the other stuff. That's this group. Centurion, women, rich guy. And we could go longer from the other gospels. There's, there's more to the group. But just for today, centurion, women, rich guy. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were what? Filled with awe. They've done a couple crucifixions. This one was different. And what did they say? Verse 54. Truly, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. He's different. 
Do you think these soldiers were converted? Is this real faith? Some have tried to say, well, they're just putting it into their pagan worldview. It's a, another son of another God. I don't think so. I can't prove it, but I don't think so. The reason is this phrase, son of God, has been repeated over and over again by the chief priests. This is a Jewish view of the son of God. And the soldiers have been here, and they're hearing all of this. And they've seen, they've seen Jesus be so different. Like, I doubt he's the, I think he's the only one ever who they're like, here's the gall, and he's like, don't want it. And you know, you know what I'm definitely sure of? Look at Luke 23, 34. What did every one of these soldiers hear? Some of you in this room have people you haven't forgiven right now because they said something to you. They did something to you. You're hurt. You can't let it go. Just try, okay? Try. And the way you're going to try is you're going to look at this. Because the reason you won't forgive them is because you're thinking, but look what they did to me. I'm not saying it wasn't bad. It was bad. I'm just saying that doesn't have anything to do with it. Because look at this line. What are they doing to Jesus during this line? The next line after this says, they divided his clothes. They're crucifying him right now. They flogged him and they're crucifying. They're putting nails in his wrists right now. And what does he say? Father, what? Forgive them. You guys, you have to know God is going to bring holy wrath when he comes in judgment on everyone who rejected the son. The father loves the son and he's bringing it. Holy wrath. How would you feel if someone crucified your child? The father has wrath against the denial and mistreatment of his son. And he should. And yet the father has grace for those who've denied and mistreated his son. For all who put their faith in what Jesus has done. But the power here is Jesus saying, Father, what? Forgive them. Don't count it against, against them. They're pinning me to the wood. Let it go. Forgive them, Father based on what I'm going to do for them. It's awesome. Do you think these soldiers have ever heard someone they're crucifying saying, I forgive you? Do you think he's ever heard that? What? What? And by the way, I think that because Jesus prayed for them, that means something. When Jesus prays, I think the Father listens. And so these soldiers are witnessing this. They're watching this. They're hearing this. They're seeing the darkness. They're feeling the earthquake. That guy asked that I would be forgiven. He's the son of God. And you know what each of these soldiers is going to hear in two days? Their friend, Joe, the other Roman soldier who had to work at the, at the tomb, is going to say, hey, between you and me, don't tell anybody, but there was an angel and we all fell over, and now the tomb's empty. We don't know what to do. The Pharisees paid us off. He was the son of God. He is the son of God. He sees it. He says it. He can see the preciousness of the cross. Right? The story's not over yet, but he can see it. Look at these women, verse 55 to 56. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who have followed Jesus from Galilee. What were they doing? Ministering to him. The disciples in that night, and I guess we can't blame them in one way. They just woke up, swords, clubs, they ran. We probably would have run too. Peter followed for a little bit, betrayed Christ. John comes back. He comes to the cross. We see that in the Gospel of John. 
But who was there following through the process? These women. And what were they doing? They're ministering to him. How? I don't know. Just being there, crying, looking at him, telling him they loved him. I don't know. It's so emotional. But they were so faithful in following. And they heard all the mocking. And they were ministering him. They saw, what did they see at the cross? They didn't know the end of the story. But they saw preciousness. Our church is full of women like this. You are these women. Faithfully loving and serving Jesus. So what a team. You got a centurion proclaiming the truth. You got the women faithfully following, ministering. And then look at verse 57. The other strange member of this strange group. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He's a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate. What did he do? Verse 58. Asked for the body. I want the body. This was a risk. This was a risk. He was rich. He was connected to the religious leadership. He's going to be ostracized. He might lose his wealth. Heck, in this moment, he might lose his life. Pilate's the one that just had Jesus hung up. This is a risk. It's a public risk. I'll take the body. I want the body. Not only does he risk, we see in other places he buys just loads of wealthy spices and things to load up on Jesus and show Jesus honor. Show Jesus honor. In fact, he even gives up his tomb. This would be super expensive. Only the rich could have tombs like these. Crucified people got thrown in mass graves. This is a rich man's tomb cut in the rock. It's got the nice disc door to easily roll down into the groove, shutting things up, making it safe. You've got to make it safe so the animals don't eat your people and so the thieves don't take whatever you put in the tomb. This is a rich man's tomb. And Joseph says, it's for Jesus. It's for Jesus. And little did Joseph know what he was accomplishing. He's risking for Jesus. He sees value and preciousness in Jesus, and he's willing to identify with it and invest in it. And I don't, Do what you want to me. I love him. That's what Joseph is saying. But look at this again. Let's have our minds blown. One more time. Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, that's Jesus. Who considered... We're talking about our view of the cross. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Why? Stricken for the what? Transgression of my people. That's why. Oh, and then one more tidbit, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked. He was killed with the criminals. And with a, a rich man in his death. You'd read that back in the day and be like, we're the rich man. I don't get it. Who cares? Matthew 27. Oh, it's a rich man's tomb. It had to be a rich man's tomb. It had to be a rich man's tomb. It had to be. Several reasons. Who knows where Jesus is buried in the city of Jerusalem? Everyone. It's not just a mass grave, unmarked bodies. Everyone. There's one body in there. As we're going to see in a moment, it's going to be guarded with soldiers. It's going to be sealed. Everybody knows where it is. Why is that important? Because in a couple days, spoiler alert, it's going to be empty. You guys, when you see a view of the cross, the soldier sees the truth. The ladies are faithful in ministering. The, the rich man takes the risk. Look how the world will find it. 
One last scene, verse six, scene six, verses 62 to 66. The next day, that is, the day after the day of Passover, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. They pay attention better than the disciples do. Verse 64, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate says, you got soldiers, go, do what you want. They sealed the stone, they set a guard. The disciples aren't getting in there to steal the body. No way. But that's for another day. Next Sunday. (laughs) For today... What are the Pharisees and the chief priests worried about? We have to end this Jesus movement. This is dangerous. It's upset, this upsets the apple cart. It's dangerous. So set a guard. Now it won't work. But listen to this. A cross combined with a resurrection is dangerous. It's dangerous. It causes things like people to serve Jesus with all their hearts. It causes things like people having no more same allegiances to, this, to their sin and to the world. It makes change lives. It changes cultures. It changes nations. It's changed me. It's changed you. The world thinks a cross combined with a resurrection is dangerous because it is And the way to end this passage is to say this. As you look at the cross and you ask how to see it, how to interpret it, see who's on the cross, the precious Son of God. See what's happening. We're being saved from sin and brought into fellowship with the Father. We have a new life. Be like the centurion. Say it out loud. Be like those women, faithfully serve. Be like Joseph and risk it all for Jesus. Be dangerous because you're alive. Because Jesus rose. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so beautiful and awesome. We're amazed at what you've done for us. Father, help us to see what you see. Help us to know what you did. Help us to be moved, amazed. Help us to respond in praise like that Roman soldier. Knowing we're forgiven, knowing we're loved by the Son of God. Help us to respond like those women, so faithful, devoting themselves to you. Help us to respond like Joseph, risking to honor our king. And help us to be dangerous, not in any sense of violence or rudeness, of course, but dangerous in the sense that we know who our Lord is. And we live for him. And we're not ashamed. And we'll tell the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.